Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Welcome to the Cato podcast. I've uh, asked uh, my co-host, uh, Brent Stratton, to uh, join us here with Adam and Chris, uh, both part of the uh, Cato staff and to talk about California Assembly Bill 481, which is affectionately called the Military Equipment Law, even though I would argue there's a few things in there that are clearly not military equipment. So to start us off, uh, near and dear to uh, Brent's heart is the introduction to the bill before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts. And the goal of our panel discussion here is to talk about uh, some of the specific things and how to address them, and then some of the things that are vague that are probably going to require some litigation and case law because there are parts of this bill I think we all would agree are very poorly written. Yeah, thanks for joining us uh, here tonight, guys. We uh, have a, a broad perspective, a group of perspectives here with uh, spread throughout the state. We really appreciate your time, you know, Adam and Chris and, and Travis for giving us your opinion. And so I think that we all share some frustrations like Marcus talked about with the assembly bill um, as it's written. And I've read this thing probably a couple hundred times uh, by now, trying to get a, a firm understanding of the ins and outs of it. And uh, there's a lot to, to be concerned with and to complain about, but ultimately this is something that uh, we're dedicated to the rule of law and we're going to, we're going to comply with. So the most frustrating part of it for me, however, is kind of the redefinition and the expansion of what um, military equipment is. Um, and in the first portion that's the most concerning um, that the legislature wrote is in that section A, where it says the acquisition of military equipment as deployment in our communities adversely impacts the public safety and welfare, including increased risk of civilian deaths significant risk to civil rights, civil liberties, and physical and psychological well-being, and increment of significant financial costs. Military equipment is more frequently deployed in low-income black and brown communities, meaning the risk and impacts of police militarization are experienced most acutely in marginalized communities. I think that uh, to give some voice to some of the frustration that uh, anybody that's in law enforcement, specifically those in the tactical community have, is the offensive nature and verbiage in this section right here. we all know that as um, the equipment that is outlined here is designed specifically and used to save lives and tactics and the utilization of tactics are designed to uh, save lives, to save lives of the citizens that we're serving, save lives of the officers who are going out there. And it saves the lives of the suspects um, that we're ultimately trying to apprehend. The use of the military equipment that's out here is a component in my uh, estimation of uh, less lethal tools used to to de-escalate and to facilitate a peaceful resolution um, to tactical incidents. These are absolutely utilized to prevent and save life. Um, I We disagree completely that it incurs any kind of significant financial cost, that it saves money in the long run that these are investments that are here that we're dedicated to protecting the civil rights and civil liberties of those that we serve in the way that we uh, enforce the law um, irrespective of anybody's race or beliefs so that's the absolute bedrock of what cato um, is built on and those that are are 
here trying to better themselves in the way they serve their their communities and their departments as well. So we just want to give some voice to the frustration and the way that it's written. It's something that we are um, absolutely opposed to. However, with all that being said, there's a lot that goes into this assembly bill, and there's a lot that your agency needs to be working on and getting up to speed and up to par. And that's what we're hoping to be able to cover in, in uh, the podcast today. Yeah, and, and to jump in on that, I don't think any of us philosophically disagree with the fact that we work for the community and the elected officials are supposed to represent that community and they have a say in how we police the community. And I think we all agree with that going all the way back to Robert Peel. And, and it's okay that for me, it's a city manager, city council, public safety committee, board of supervisors, whatever it is for your shop gets a say in how we do business and what we do. We should have already been doing this. Uh, However, we didn't. We didn't do a good job of it, and so now, you know, the legislature is gonna gonna kind of make us do it, and also make our electeds be be a little bit more involved. And even going back as far as Sid, you know, talking about in L.A. and the riots, uh, multiple times in his career, uh, he would go before the board of supervisors and explain what they do and their tactics and seek approval, and they're they're not going to give it to you. They're they're, they're going to see what you can't do, but they're not going to see what you can do because they don't want to be part of that liability. So this is a way that the legislature is trying to make sure that we talk with our electeds and our electeds get involved in how we police the community. And I don't, I don't have an issue with that. Um, but I also right. don't disagree with the biased nature of, of this legislation in that area, or uh, that there's some sections in it that are, that are vague and, and poorly written. It's important to understand as we're having these debates with these discussions, as you listen to the language of this particular politician and you talk about division, right? There's the police and then there's a the community. I live in the same city where I work, right? So, I, I, I mean, that's we're members of the community. Police are the public, public are the police. Yep. And so that's the first thing we're, we're talking about bridging that gap is when people, the people that suffer are the members of the community. Right. If we don't have the tools to do our job, generally, we're not the ones who are getting hurt as a result of it. We'll hang back or do whatever we need to do until we have enough officers or deputies or whatever the case may be, usually. But it's the community that suffers. It's the person who's being held hostage. It's the people who are the victim of an active shooter. It's the you know family who's holed up with a barricade suspect, whatever the case may be. It's the shop owners whose stores are getting destroyed in the middle of a riot or people whose apartment buildings are being set ablaze. It's not us. It's the community that suffers. And I think we're seeing that as we're having these conversations now with our electeds, as we're trying to pass these policies, it's important to understand the climate that we're in now is slightly different when you're looking at the rising crime rates and you're even seeing people like London Breed in San Francisco saying, right. eh, we need to take a second look at how we're doing law enforcement because, I mean, and she was some very strong language, right? I mean, I think she said, you know, this bullshit's yeah. got to stop or something to that effect. So it's important to understand if, if what this politician is saying, if we're going to take him at face value and say, all we're looking for is to have some oversight. Oversight isn't awful. Um, as long as it's fair and reasonable, I think that's where we're running into some friction. But the, the ecosystem that we're in now is different than it was 12, 18, 24 months ago. So I think, again, as we're talking with our electeds or our, you know, their, their staff members as we work through this, 
And it's important to take a professional approach to it and not a bang your fist saying, this is flawed, this is ridiculous, These are this is not military equipment. It's like, okay, so the legislature's chosen to put these restrictions or these checks and balances. This is what you stand to lose. This is what you stand to lose if you take these things away um, because people have a, an aversion to loss. Not what you have to gain, but loss aversion is what keeps people awake at night. You know, And if you vote against this or you take these tools away, it's going to come back to you if a situation arises. So I, I think it's important to have a strategy ahead of time before we have these negotiations to talk to these people on an individual basis whenever feasible to do those um, the station tours, the equipment and demystify and say, hey, listen, all the Bearcat is, it's a giant moving shield on wheels. That's all it is. It doesn't launch missiles. It doesn't launch rockets. I, I mean, it just, it doesn't. They're, your, your drones, they don't go around and with lasers and all this other stuff. They just, it's something you can buy off of Amazon and maybe it has some extra equipment on it with better cameras and whatnot. Take away the mystery and have a reasonable conversation. Show them how it works. And chances are, you're gonna be keeping most of your stuff. But if you take an adversarial approach, the chances of it being a test of wills becomes a lot greater. And that's where we stand to lose because ultimately they're holding the cards in this negotiation. The bill uh, goes on to require or, or to talk about the acquisition of military equipment, which Brent covered. And then uh, the public has the right to know the funding and how we got it, where we got it from, what we use it for. That's fair. And we should give strong consideration to the public's welfare, safety, civil rights, and civil liberties, and should be based on meaningful public input. For me, uh, that's uh, section one, subsection C. I don't, I don't know what that means, and that doesn't seem appropriate to put in there. That's not really a law. That's just a philosophy. And uh, we should have transparency and oversight and accountability. And we have a civil local government that's set up already to do that. So uh, I'm, I'm unclear on why that needed to be in there, but it's not really something you know, to fight about. It just talks, again, kind of speaks to the author's uh, bias or, uh, I don't know, agenda. Um, lack of a public forum to discuss acquisition of military equipment jeopardizes the relationship police have with the community, which can be undermined when law enforcement is seen as an occupying force rather than a public safety service. I think we do need a public forum for that. And I think the public does need to know uh, what we have. And we have a, you know, city managers that should approve uh, those purchases. Uh, so I would kind of argue about the occupying force. Uh, generally speaking, we're not occupying any area for very long. We're usually bringing about some form of order out of chaos, and then we move on. So I would probably argue a little bit about the occupying force rather than public safety service. Marcus, I think what you're seeing here is, and this is why it's important for people to read the actual bill and its contents, is it expresses the legislative intent. And it expresses where the author, co-authors, and the people who are supporting the bill and the governor who signs it into law, where they're coming from. And whether or not we agree with it or we disagree with it, that's, that's our environment. That's the terrain that we're operating in right now. And it's important for us to understand that because you know, we're part of the executive branch. We have bosses. We have bosses and so on. And 
you know, we can ignore the reality of being in law enforcement in California, or we can understand it and try and work within those confines. And I think when, like what we were talking about a minute ago, with a lot of legislation that we see coming out of the 2020 and 2021 sessions, you can kind of see what the legislature is trying to do, but unfortunately it's produced some unfortunately uh, flawed legislation that's going to result in litigation, that's going to result in case law being established. Um, I think for us as people who may be informing policy, um, it's important for us to understand that we wanna create the most robust policies for our departments and for our cities so that maybe we aren't part of that case law, um, so that maybe we aren't the testing grounds. And if we are, we're on sound footing. And I think as we're building our policies, most people don't know that this 481 took effect January 1st. I mean, there's some, some consequences behind that that are pretty immediate. Um, you know, if we're on top of this, we can set our operators, our teams, and our management up for success. If we kind of drag our heels on this, then we really run into problems. We limit ourselves. And what you see, not to go off on a tangent, but what happened up in Washington State when they approved a similar measure is it pretty much prohibited the use of a number of less lethal tools. You know, your, your beanbag shotguns, your 40 millimeter. Uh, and they actually, I think if I'm not mistaken, they had a special session to rectify that because you had chiefs and sheriffs saying, we can't resolve these crisis response kind of situations without our tools. We're basically left with pepper spray, a baton and a firearm. And we don't want that. We've come a long way from that. We don't want to lose those tools. And that's why it's so important to be on top of this legislation so that if we make good policy internally, we get our city councils or board of supervisors, whoever adopt that, or we get, you know, we kind of have that mutual agreement, that understanding, we build good policy, then that may inform law moving down the road. But if we don't, and we form shoddy policy, or we isolate ourselves from our electeds, that's, that's no way to operate in the current environment. Yes. And, and inconsistent with our, with our social contract, right? With, which is what the police are the public and the public are the police. Absolutely. But, but I think it's important, the rhetoric aside to look at the operational aspects of it, because you can look at some of the language and, you know, we're going to have a reaction to it because this is what we do as a profession. And our opinions are going to be different probably than some of the people who, who wrote this and crafted this and intended to gain some, some political capital from it. But there's, there's a way to navigate this and there's a way to inform policy and law moving forward. I don't, I don't disagree with having that transparency and oversight. Um, I, I think most of the time it's, it's a healthy deal. So let's talk real quick. Uh, we go right into uh, section two that defines a governing body, elected body that oversees law enforcement agency, or if there's no elected body that directly oversees the law enforcement agency, the appointed body that oversees the law enforcement agency. So you're talking about basically a governing body like a board of supervisors or city council or their designee. Everybody pretty much agree with that one. Nothing, nothing too big there. And I won't go line for line. I just wanted to hit some of the important parts. Then we get right into the definition of military equipment. And number one, unmanned remotely piloted powered aerial or ground vehicles. So this is where we're talking about drones. It's very interesting because uh, Brent and I had some conversations this week with some other larger agencies than us about drones are back in 
the political arena when it comes to the elected federal and state governments talking about drones and uh, invasion of privacy and stuff like that with law enforcement. So it's interesting that this drone somehow made military equipment. I'm not familiar. I'm only familiar with one agency in the state of California that's obtained a drone that had prior been serviced as a military drone because these are basically available on Amazon. The 99% of all the drones used in law enforcement in the state of California in America are just drones you can buy on Amazon or retail drones. So it's interesting that this made their number one of all the things that they called uh, military equipment. Then we have uh, unmanned remotely piloted power, um, I'm sorry, uh, ground vehicles. Is that robots? Or is it cars? I, I took this as uh, kind of avatars and yeah. different things like that, mostly being used to, sometimes with the tactical teams, but probably any of the uh, the robots that are being utilized by your EOD uh, teams mm-hmm. and units that are coming through there. Now, those are things that we have obtained through the uh, through the DLA, the Defense Logistics Agency, that will commonly referred to the 1033 program. Those are some things that a lot of agencies are able to to get and utilize on, on the EOD side. But I think that's, generally speaking, the intent of, uh, of the legislature here um, with, with that verbiage. Yeah, and actually, Brent, you bring up a great point. This has come up uh, recently. We were... Uh down in San Diego. And we were talking to uh, some other Central Valley folks too. And there was a fair amount of uh, people that believed because of this bill was designated the military equipment bill that it only applied to items that you purchased through the 1033 program. And uh, I wanna say, since we heard about this bill, that's come up at least once a week in my small circles within Cato. And, And in my opinion, this bill covers everything it, it while while it covers military equipment that many people have got through 1033 nowhere in this bill does it say anything that it only applies to items that you got through 1033 and so you got to be real careful if you're listening and you're in charge of your agency's 1033 program it's a lot more than just your 1033 program does everyone agree on that yeah, I, I can confirm that. I, I was in a seminar last month with the state 1033 reps and they confirmed that this bill AB 41 extended far beyond any equipment acquired through uh, DGS or through the 1033 program. It's it's basically just this laundry list that was listed. The items that are listed on here, you can't even acquire through 1033. Right. Uh, in fact, many of them, you can't, right? So that's that kind of gets to the frustration of it when you start trying to understand the intent behind the legislature and being able to honor that, which is absolutely what we want to be able to do. But when you look at the legislative council's digest, the initial entry level to it, there's a full paragraph that's dedicated to the federal surplus property acquisition law of 1945. So, you know, it's a reasonable assumption that people think that because the very, very, literally the very first words about this entire bill spend the whole time talking about how military equipment is acquired through the Defense Logistics Agency, the 1033 program. So you're starting to read this thing thinking that the intent of the legislature is uh, to talk about stuff that comes through the 1033 program. I mean, we've gone as far as to research the bill's author and what is it that he that that they that they want to, what are they trying to accomplish by this? And they talk about seeing military equipment in the streets and being utilized against 
uh, you know, against citizens. So for those of us who do this and acquire equipment and purchase equipment and field and staff and train officers, we look at these things going, this is absolutely not military equipment. They're talking about the 1033 program. That is what military equipment is. So I think it's a very, very reasonable assumption that it's there. And and the, the poor verbiage in here really kind of leads towards that. But I would agree with you guys 100% because I initially thought that as well. Um, I think even after reading through this thing 30 or 40 times, there's where's I, points where I thought about it, specifically when you start getting into section uh, 16 of it, where it talks about general equipment not designated as prohibited or controlled by the DLA, and you start having to understand, well, what is it that is controlled and what is not controlled? And looking through some of that that equipment, um, it, it's, it can get confusing, but I agree 100%. This is going to be inclusive of anything that you get from the Defense Logistics Agency, and then they have expanded the definition of what, of what that is to include general tools that we all use that is it's just frankly not military equipment, but that's that's what it's being defined as uh, here. You can look at it for those of you who are familiar with previous legislative bills and how uh, the the definition of sexual assault, for instance, was broadened and, and defined um, in you know in, in eight thirty two point seven. It's very similar here in that military equipment. It's just it's a broader definition than we've ever had before. Let's talk about MRAPs, right? Mine resistant ambush protected vehicles or armored personnel carriers. However, police versions of standard consumer vehicles are specifically excluded. So it's very interesting that that uh, of all the kind of junky things in this bill, this one was very specific that MRAPs are military vehicles and Bearcats are not, or versions of Bearcats, you know, the Lenko, which is probably, you know, one of the top two armored vehicles used uh, by SWAT teams or tactical teams. Chris, you got some experience with obtaining and regulating MRAPs. Do you think that this is going to be one of those deals where the few agencies that are still able to use them won't, won't be using them anymore? No, I think it completely depends on the communities that they serve and, and where the support is at. So an MRAP is about three quarters of a million dollars. It's, it's twice as expensive as a uh, average upfitted uh, Linco. But, you know, you mentioned a couple of times purchasing things through 1033. While you do use a shopping cart while you're acquiring, acquiring equipment through them, the only thing you pay for is shipping if it's not local. And so, you know, to have a flatbed truck bring a Cayman MRAP from the uh, BAE uh, refurbish factory in Texas to California, it's about $15,000. And so for a community that can't afford or hasn't been allowed to purchase a Bearcat, um, if they were in the 1033 program, they were able to get on the list and get an MRAP, which now provided them with a rescue vehicle for the different types of critical incidents that we respond to. So in those communities, the option is no vehicle or a surplus vehicle that taxpayers already paid for once that is now being used to support law enforcement efforts within their community. So are there going to be agencies? I can tell you my agency was one of them. We got an MRAP and there was no way that we were going to be given the few hundred thousand dollars to replace our uh, former armored vehicle, which was a armored car that had uh, level 3A uh, armor in it. So it's not even rifle rated armor, that's handgun armor. Um, and, and so we, we got the MRAP and we were prohibited from using it except to, in a few very specific uh, circumstances. Um, one that got some national coverage, 
And uh, when we got a new police chief, he was able to uh, secure funding uh, for the Bearcat. And we transferred that MRAP to another agency through the 1033 program, and they're still using them. Next is high mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, Humvees, commonly referred to as a Humvee, two and one half ton trucks, five ton trucks, or wheeled vehicles that have a breaching or entry apparatus attached. However, unarmored all-terrain vehicles and motorized dirt bikes are specifically excluded from this subdivision. So my question to the panel is, a Lenko Bearcat is in fact a vehicle that has a breaching or entry apparatus attached to it. So does a Lenko Bearcat, in your opinion, apply to this? And again, we're not attorneys. We're just saying, hey, this is who we are and what we're interpreting. The same thing anybody else can read uh, of the law. I, I think it isn't. Yes. Oh, really? That's an interesting point. Whoa. I, think, I think, yeah, good one. I actually think uh, that it hits two and three because I think the armored personnel carrier, and now Chris, I'll defer to your military expertise as to maybe why a, uh, a you know armored vehicle like a Bearcat is not an armored personnel carrier in Section Two. But my interpretation would be that the Bearcat would be covered as an armored personnel carrier. Car- uh, carrier, even though it says police versions of standard consumer vehicles are specifically excluded from this subdivision. And then when you go into three, when it talks about um, wheeled vehicles that have a breaching or entry apparatus attached, I know I don't know how yours is set up, but to be able to have the the, the ram and chemical munition on being able to attach to it, my interpretation is that it was it, it would apply here. But if I uh, man, this is like we say on every podcast and right here, like we don't do these things in the market, right? Because we haven't figured out we're doing because we're learning selfishly. We we get a chance to pick pick your guys' brains as well. So if there's a different way to to read through this, I'm all ears. I'm I'm sticking with two and saying that uh, the you know Linco is a police version of a standard consumer vehicle, and it's in, included there. It's built on a forged chassis and uh, it's it's up armored. It's not an MRAP. It's not a Humvee. Uh, it's, you know, the two and a half ton and the five ton trucks, the, the cargo trucks or flatbed trucks that they're referring to in there, you know, that agencies use to move generators around when there's natural disasters. But, you know, apparently, you know, that that's evil now. And it, one, one thing it's important to remember is this legislation started after Ferguson and California's first version of this got shot down. Um, it was uh, vetoed by the governor at the time, and it's continued to come back and continue to come back and continue to come back. And the events of last year during the George Floyd protests, uh, I'm sure, uh, catapulted this through the legislature. Um, but that, that's where a lot of this comes from. And that's where the misinformation comes from as well. So tracked armored vehicles provide ballistic protection to occupants, utilize a track system instead of wheels for forward motion. That's going to be your tactical tractors and, I guess, tanks but but uh uh really you're talking about your tactical tractors you're, there you're are still agencies there's still agencies in california that use the m113 which had no cannons no no artillery attached to it at all it was just simply an armored personnel carrier that was tracked there's two things at play here one is a lot of our folks in the legislature and locally believe that Police departments and sheriff's departments have this secret garage where we have tracked vehicles and mounted weapons and things like that, because that's part of this misinformation, right? And I've, and I've heard stories of people who are on staff 
getting tours and being asking the question, hey, so where's your tank? We don't have a tank. Hey, where's the turret with the, the machine guns? We don't have machine guns. Like we're civilian law enforcement. We don't, you know, there are certain departments who may for limited applications, certainly on the rural areas and things like that, I get. But, you know, to all of us, this some of the stuff that we see seems ridiculous, right? You see the stuff that's captured in this legislation thinking, who came up with this? Remember, part of this is not so well informed. It's part of that imagination that some of these folks believe that we have this secret cache of weaponry. And then they also have this image of, you know, police officers in tracked vehicles rolling through neighborhoods, you know, or people up in turrets with automatic weapons or, you know, two and a half pound guns, right, on, on you know, on a, on a rolling thunder. So that's, that's where this is coming from. And so part of our job as we form these policies and as we meet with our electives to get this stuff through is to demystify what we do have. And just to what you were saying a few minutes ago, Marcus, is a lot of the stuff anybody can walk into a store and get, right? I mean, not that anyone's going to go in and buy a Lenko or, or something like that, but anybody can walk into a store and buy a shotgun and put orange furniture on it and call it a beanbag shotgun, which is covered under this, right? Um, there's certain like uniform requirements that talks about different kinds of patterning on uniforms and things like that. Anybody can go on to Amazon if you're into LARPing, right? The live action role play and kit yourself out like you're getting ready to, uh, you know, go into Ramadi. But that, that is what all this legislation gets into. Part of it is practical as far as the oversight side. And the other part of it is just imagination running wild. And, and that's kind of the unfortunate, I guess, intersection where we find ourselves. Well, and, and let's be honest, there's people in our profession throughout the country that squirrel away some of this stuff and pop out and use it inappropriately. And, and, uh, and if, if we haven't yes. learned anything from Radley Belko, we've learned that uh, we give you know folks the stick to beat us with. And so there are agencies that have squirreled away stuff that I would say is inappropriate or used inappropriately or used in the wrong, wrong, right. wrong time and wrong place. And, and without that transparency, it just showed up. And so absolutely yeah, we're, we're kind of talking about that. I mean, that's why we're here. All right. Uh, moving along. We uh, talk about weaponized aircraft vessels or vehicles of any kind. Um, and then I forgot we skipped over this one command and control vehicles that are either built or modified to facilitate the operational control and direction of public safety units. This one was weird to me because you're just talking about a command post, which generally speaking, I view as a very neutral piece of equipment it can be used to manage a disaster response. It can be used to manage an adversarial response, all, all kinds of stuff. It's a very neutral thing. So it's, it's interesting that made it in there. I, I don't have an issue with it, but I, I don't know. Maybe that's just because of how much money they cost, or there's a perception again of what what we're using for for these command vehicles. Either way, it's, it's a not lot a big of it's, deal. A lot of it's a perception issue, Marcus. Right? I mean, we have a very specific view because we're on law enforcement. We probably have had a favorable view of law enforcement our whole lives. That's how we end up in, in these careers. But you have communities and community groups where if you park, you know, a mobile vehicle, you know, Winnebago that says you know, your local police department or sheriff's department on the side and you set up shop, some people find that offensive, right? Or some people see that as an occupation. I'm not saying that's the case, but you have people who elect representatives who represent those communities. And that's why this is built in. That's why it's so important to understand our role 
informing policies? Because a lot of this, all you're doing is talking about what you have, how much it costs, and what you use it for, and creating oversight that your city council or board of supervisors can basically check and balance. And then ultimately, they're the ones who are accountable if we don't have the tools that we need to do our jobs. And that's a whole other discussion where it really does put a lot of the onus back on them. So if they say, you can't have these tools, just like what happened in Washington State, and then you have chiefs and sheriffs coming out and saying, you're the ones who took this stuff away from us. So we're not going to engage with these folks. We're not going to try and take them into custody, not out of spite, but out of self-preservation and trying to comply with the law because we don't want to run afoul of the law and get charged criminally or have a civil case brought against us. So that's where we need to understand that there's a lane for us to, to kind of, I don't say stay in, but there's there's a role for us to play. And if we do it appropriately, it can actually work to our benefit, despite some of the rhetoric that's worked into the legislation here. Yeah, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly agree, right? The accountability on this thing is not just with law enforcement. It's with the electeds and, and making sure they're involved. Did you have something else, Brent? Yeah, more of a question for you guys. Practically speaking, you know, we're talking about we're still, you know, working on, on the definitions of, of going through each of these things. But at some point, um, you know, we're going to talk about you have to be able to create some sort of a policy. And, you know, my opinion would be that you'd, you'd create a policy, then you'd have an attachment that actually almost outlines all of the equipment that you uh, that you put in there. But how far down the rabbit hole are you guys going on command and control vehicles? So I'm guessing like most agencies, I, I think for their watch commanders might have some sort of a, um, you know, an SUV that's got a grease board and, you know, radio lights in the back, similar like a fire command vehicle to be able to set up some sort of a, an incident command, any kind of a, a critical incident, not even an adversarial one. Like you talked about a, a mechanical issue or a natural so I, issue. I wish are, my, are you guys, in, are you guys my setup was as that? good as fires. Yeah, for sure. So is this something, though, that you guys plan on including those command and control vehicles? Or is this really specifically for like what Adam's talking about, the big RV, you know, that was repurposed at some point that, you know, negotiators might use or or, or whatever? How, how are you guys seeing that? So for me, I see it as just the, the purpose vehicles. The, their, their purpose is to provide command and control. Everything else prior to that that command vehicle rolling out or trailer or whatever it is your shop uses is just us making do with what we have. Even though I know the strict interpretation of that sentence would be equipped, modified, you could say that even a pull-out shelf in the back of your SUV with a light is a modification. You know, I think I think that would maybe be being a little too strict in the interpretation of the law. But again, who am I? I'm just like you know, I'm just like you guys. I'm just reading it. Any, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it generally, the, the legislation generally exempts your routine patrol vehicles, your standard issue service weapons, the stuff that people assume are going to be just basic police work, right? You've got a black and white Crown Vic or an SUV, or maybe it's a Tahoe. It's got the standard equipment in it. That's how we manage basic incidents. I think what they're talking about is the larger vehicles that are your RV size vehicles that they roll in, you set them up, and it's basically putting a flag in the ground and saying, hey, the police department is here running a particular incident or whether it's a 4th of July or a New Year's Eve or, or whatever. But your standard Chevy Tahoe that's been outfitted with, you know, grease board and stuff like that, like your battalion chiefs might have a fire department. I, I think this is specifically exempted on patrol vehicles. That's, yeah. that's my feeling. Is, that's my feeling as well. Just not sure how, how everybody else is... Uh... <laughs> 
is gathering their their list of equipment. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, I I would agree with that one. Let's uh, we're trying not to go line by line here, Trav, but we're 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 actually breaking down some some stuff. So we're at weaponized aircraft, vessels, or vehicles of any kind. Um, I am unfamiliar with anybody that has a weaponized aircraft or vehicle uh, in California. Any anybody have anything all, on that all one? Of your, all of your counties and harbor patrols post 9-11, uh, a lot of mm. them got grants and uh, military equipment to uh, interdict vessels on the waterways. Uh, so that would probably affect them. Well, hey. you can't ignore what happened. <clears throat> Excuse me, what happened in Dallas, right? <clears throat> where the chief at the time took a robot, armed it with explosives to deal with that sniper who shot a number of officers and, and just, you know, wreaked havoc. So now that that was introduced into the imagination as a possibility, even though that's not part of the standard inventory of, I would imagine, any police department, it's now a tactic that's been demonstrated to the public. And so it's quite publicly. And so now what you're seeing is that also being integrated as part of, if that's an intended use, that's something that needs to be stated. But that also leaves room if you build in a, let's say, a, a pathway for exigencies, exigent circumstances and things like that, which can be built in your, your procedure as well. Yeah, gotcha. All right. I didn't even think about that. Good. Thank you, Chris. Um, and now we're into battering ram slugs, breaching apparatuses that are explosive in nature. However, items designed to remove locks, bolt cutters, handheld rams, stuff like that. It's not. They're excluded. So battering ram slugs. And breaching apparatus. So uh, shotgun breaching, probably part of this deal. That's probably your cheapest form of breaching that we have besides just a ram. And then uh, I'm assuming after that, it's all your standard explosive breaching stuff, which we don't have. So that's uh, I'd say that that one's pretty cut and dry. Uh, I don't know why we're worried about breaching slugs, but totally get it. It's easy to talk about. It should be something people know about. Um, they're still highly used uh, across the country. And then 50 caliber firearms or greater. However, I got a standard, question about the, about the explosive stuff you, for, for those that are running. You, you can't ask that anymore. You lost your time. <laughs> for those that are running explosive breaching programs, and I'm getting back to the item, itemized components to this, are we thinking, you know, including blasting caps and deck cord and the, the amounts that, EOD can use for um, an explosive breaching program, or is it, how, how do you guys interpret that? My thought is you're going to end up doing a pretty good dive into educating the public on your, on what your program is and the tools that you need and why you need them and how much they cost. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick. I mean, one of the things that I'm going to talk about because, you know, my agency's had an explosive breaching program for over 20 years is the fact that we did a, uh, site survey of city hall and i can tell you right now if something were happen were to happen inside the city hall chambers i could not access city hall from the rear which is where i would want to come if i did not have explosives there is no other way i can't use manual tools any of that stuff i could not access those doors those access points without explosives. And I think one of the things we really need to pass on to everybody is think about your jurisdiction, think about how you use these tools and how they are able to 
help you during a crisis and then equate that crisis to something that's happened across the nation. You know, I always go back to Thousand Oaks. Everybody says, oh, an active shooter won't happen in our jurisdiction. Well, Thousand Oaks is the second safest city in the nation. So always equate how we use these tools to a crisis and how it equates to your jurisdiction. Um, 50 cals, easy. I mean, we've had situations that have happened across the country where those have been a game changer for us. So, yeah, great point. I mean, think of Orlando, you know, the, the, the Orlando Pulse nightclub, right? Like, how are you going to get in there? Well, and that's a great point, Marcus. I mean, if you look at the, the Pulse nightclub, they had not trained with, and that wasn't Orlando. Orlando did not have an explosive breaching program. And, and for our listeners, a lot of agencies throughout the nation, I mean, we're pretty lucky here in California to have as many explosive breaching programs as we do. That's not prolific throughout the nation. A lot of teams back then, that was 2016, did not have explosive breaching programs. And Orlando was the precipice for them to get explosive breaching programs. Uh, that was another agency that came in and, and did that explosive breach for Orlando. And they had not trained together in a long time, which caused them a lot of issues. So we really need to do a good job of looking historically, even, even recently at what's happened, to how we can equate that to how we would use these tools that the legislators have now told us are military equipment. And this goes back to how we, we navigate this, right? Because to, to Travis's point, the Marxist point earlier, if what this is, it's oversight. And if they deny access to these tools, if your legislative body denies access to these tools, it's important for us to explain unemotionally in a situation like a Pulse nightclub, in a situation like Thousand Oaks, if we don't have these tools, it's going to put people's lives at risk. It's going to put the safety of your responders and your community members at risk. On the back end of that, the reckoning is going to be, we asked for these tools and you voted against giving us those tools. And that, that's looking two, three, four steps ahead, right? Where there's going to be the, the current environment that we're in and God forbid we have a critical incident where we really need these sorts of specific tools and we don't have them, there's going to be a reckoning on the back end as well. So trying to offer a little bit of perspective to the people who are going to be voting on this is going to be important. And one other thing is a lot of these items are already controlled and you can't buy them at a Walmart in California. So you have to use the PO process. Uh, if the dollar amounts meet a threshold, uh, you know, it varies from city and county it already has to have city manager or city council approval for these purchases. And so the um, you know, volume of uh, explosives and quantity of you know, those components that are already being acquired, there's already POs for that stuff. This is already something that's been accounted for. And uh, the agencies can show a track record of how they've been used, at, you know, what the consumption rate is for trading and their uh, actual operations. And this is, it's pulling back the curtain a little bit, but it kind of seems it's a bit misguided. Yeah, great points. Thank you. Um, I think Trav mentioned the 50 cal specialized firearms and ammunition of less than 50 cal, including assault weapons as defined in sections 30510 and 30515 of the penal code, which is uh, basically 
all assault M4 AR style weapons that we would issue our folks. And initially, I was hoping that uh, I could get around the standard patrol rifle and uh, justifying that. It, clearly, I read it again today, and I'm like, all of that applies, which is pretty, again, look at the history. You know, currently in California, we're January 2022. There's a controversial rifle shooting that just took place in Southern California that we're going to be sorting through in the next few months. But overall, we have uh, often been outgunned by our adversary and uh, Hollywood, you know, the Bank of America, Hollywood uh, shootout probably being one of the landmark tactical events that took place that justified a lot of agencies issuing more rifles to their folks. So I don't see this one as a big stretch to justify anybody else. No, I don't see it as a stretch either, especially for um, some of the rifles that are running on tactical teams. Um, did I understand you say that you're um, you're going to interpret this even for like a patrol rifle program as well? Well, it talks about, yeah, if it meets the definition of an assault rifle, which pretty much everything we're running with in law enforcement meets the definition of a law, of an assault weapon. Like it's not one you okay. can buy at your normal store as a civilian. Right, right. No, it's just where it says, you know, with the exception of standard issue service weapons, is that not a standard, is that not a standard issue there? I'm with Brent on this. I, I think it does fall into the standard issue in that we're, we're looking at other submachine guns and other special specialized firearms uh, like that. That's where that applies. So specialized firearms and ammunition of less than 50 caliber, including assault weapons as defined in sections 3510, 3515 of the penal code, with the exception of standard issue service weapons and ammunition of less than 50 cals that are issued to officers, agents, or employees for law enforcement. So your, your deal is, even though they meet the definition of assault weapon, they're just standard issue. And because they're not modified, they don't qualify under this legislation. Is that so each, each agency is obviously a little bit different and we're working um, even within our county with some of our, our partners and, and they have a little bit of a different um, interpretation for us with we have a standard loadout for an officer built into the cost of the hiring of every officer is, you know, a, a patrol car, a computer, a pistol, a shotgun, a rifle. And so for us, that is a part of the standard loadout for a patrol officer. But I would say that if you're in an agency that does not factor that into the cost of your um, of your hiring of your officers, and if that's not something that you utilize as a standard deployment, then I think you'd probably want to include it here to be to be safe. But if that is a part of your standard thing, that's at least my my interpretation. No, I agree. We really need to pay attention and and get your city attorney or your county attorneys take on this but this is open to interpretation that the legislators don't have a good idea of exactly what we do or what we're involved in and all of those things they just throw this broad blanket on us and expect us to implement this from the bottom up and i think we need to i'm not trying to say we work around it but i mean to me if i st if i issue an m4 to every patrol officer, that's exempt. So, yeah, I think that's a fair argument. It's going to be up to your city attorney and your, you know, most of us are big boss. For for me, that's how I interpreted it. And then I read the assault weapon definition and thought, okay, well, now they're saying if it meets the definition of assault weapon, but for us, standard issue is going to be that M4, you know, AR style platform 
that's definitely something you're not buying at you know your local gun shop so and to play devil's advocate i i know we'd like to read it that way but you also look at how shotguns are specifically exempted from this right handguns standard issue pepper spray specifically exempted from this so i again i wouldn't take the the cato panel at its word this is really something to talk about with your county council or your police legal to make sure that because remember we don't want to look like we're hiding the ball so if you know the 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 city council or the county board is looking for your rifle program in here so they can exercise oversight or they can check and balance it. And we're not including that, that may damage the relationship, right? That may drive them to go even further with what they want to regulate. If it looks like we're hiding the ball again, I know everybody looks at this catastrophically as, you know, worst case scenario, they're going to take away everything and we're going to be on foot patrol with nothing more than a, than a baton, like the Bobbies in, in London. Right. But a lot of these, governing boards are not going to want to take away the tools that we have because it's so consequential if things go poorly. So again, we may consider going the extra mile. So that way we maybe enhance the relationship if that's something that you can do with your governing board rather than play this game of semantics if it's going to come back and bite us in the long run. Just just something to consider playing devil's advocate. No, I totally agree. And Travis brought it up as well that, that talked about working with your your city attorney on this. And that was something I was hoping we we're going to get to when we start talking about what the formation of a policy actually looks like, but hundred percent, right. If you're not writing this hip to hip with your city attorney office, with your County council and working through your, um, you're really putting yourself at a little bit of a disadvantage and depending on what the relationship is organizationally with, with the governing body, hopefully you have a good, um, you have a good working relationship with your city council. I don't know what exactly this, uh, looks like, uh, yet, but an idea that we have is we would really like um, the opportunity for our council to look at our full uh, inventory and be able to see what we have and be able to show them almost be, see if we can kind of even consider putting them through just a, a little bit of time, a couple hours, day at the range, and that that something to be able to get their hands on it and see it and kind of demystify some of the things that you're talking about. Kind of to Adam's point, you don't want to be in a position where you're having the football. And what we said early on too, that really some of this is an issue of us not telling our story, us not, you know, taking any opportunity we have to educate about the tools that we have, what they're designed to be able to do. Take this and let's let's educate them and put them in a defendable position as well to be able to say, no, this is why we want our police department to have these things. And this is not that, big of a deal and as scary as it sounds here this is a, a tool a piece of equipment used to protect lives it's it's good for so i i think there's definitely some that's definitely a route that you you should consider no i mean i don't i don't disagree with you at all and i'll i'll take the opposing viewpoint and just say it really depends on what jurisdiction you live you work in there are going to be some city councils, such as my own, who are going to be friendly to this stuff because they've approved. I mean, you right. know, my jurisdiction, we just approved precision long rifles. We just approved right. all of these things for purchases. Now we have to go back through it and do that again. And I'm not advocating hiding this stuff. What I'm saying is just go through, go by what the legislation says. I think we right. do this thing where we just go way overboard sometimes where we just, oh my God, we need to do this and this and this. No, go by what the law says, because that's what we have to abide by. I'm not saying we hide anything. Right. I'm no, saying abide by the law. 
And I, and I think we really do ourselves a disservice sometimes when we were like, oh my God, we need to, you know, it's an emergency. We need to just give all this stuff up. Well, no, we really don't abide by the legislation and be done with it. Are you trying to imply that as a profession, we sometimes have an all or nothing type of a culture? Well, no. And I mean, I guess this, you know, my experience with this comes with PRAs. I mean, if you look at public yeah. records requests, we've been getting hit hard. And I know other agencies have as well, asking us for all of these things that are in 481 early. I mean, this guy is a, uh, he, he lists himself as a pacifist up in Oakland, you know, because if you, if you have any experience with PRAs and I, God, I help, I hope you don't, uh, Adam, you probably do Brent, you probably do, but they are okay. So all of us do a little bit for you, Marcus. And we do this thing where we just open the doors for everything. And I don't agree with that. You know, go take a PRA class. Go see what we need to release to them. Why are we opening the door to things that we don't need to release? We're not hiding anything. But you can't tell me that somebody who puts in a PRA request for all our stuff is friendly to us. I'm sorry. They're not. They're not looking to be like, hey, the police department's doing a great job right now. No, they're not. Release what we have to do, what the law says, and be done with it. That's transparency. Yeah, yeah. Let's move down the list here a little bit, and we'll move along because I know we're running out of time here. Any firearm or firearm accessory that is designed to launch explosive projectiles. So now we're looking at anything that launches explosives. Well, it could apply to twelve gauges as well, depending on the type of specialty ammunition that the twelve gauge has. There's a perception that we run around with, like high explosive dual purpose grenades and we're ready to take out fortified bunkers uh in our community it's it's just not true the type of 40 millimeter grenades used by the military are very different than the 40 millimeter less lethal that we use the twist rate the pressures uh in most cases the launchers aren't even compatible uh, but they don't bother to get educated on it before they write this into law flashbang grenades explosive breaching tools tear gas pepper balls excluding standard service issued handheld pepper spray. So again, not your average issue for police officers, flashbangs, noise flash diversionary devices, explosive breaching tools, tear gas, should be interesting to know what the definition of tear gas is, and pepper balls. So basically almost all of our chem agent programs are non-lethal programs. And for my agency, we put uh, 40 millimeters with foam rounds in uh, all the vehicles. So it's going to cover all that patrol, patrol stuff too, in my mind. It actually goes down farther in the law and talks about that a little bit too. Uh, taser, shockwave, microwave weapons, uh, water cannons, and long-range acoustic device, the LRAD. So uh, I get the taser shockwave. I think that's what they're calling the, you know, say the taser. Uh, microwave weapons is interesting and water cannons, both... Uh, I don't believe in America anyone's using microwave weapons on people that I'm aware of. Are, are we, Trav, you know, somewhere in America we've used microwave weapons on people in a law enforcement setting? Yeah, I talked to Sid. Somebody did. Somebody did? All right. Yeah. Well, there you go, folks. Um, it is something that, that the military uses as a, a terrain uh, protection device. So uh, we get that, why that's necessary. And water cannons. Uh, Used stole in Europe, uh, not used in America anymore due to uh, misuse. 
and uh, we'll see we'll see when that changes or if it changes someday. But that one's still pretty straightforward. Uh, any other interpretation issues with that one? Just the Taser Shockwave isn't the regular Taser devices. That that was like the little Claymore Mine area denial device, and I don't believe Taser sells it uh, to domestic law enforcement anymore. It's a federal and military item only. So again, that terrain uh, protection type of deal. And the LRAD, uh, uh, that kind of depends on how your shop uses the LRAD. Uh, you know, you go back to Seattle when they use the LRAD to kind of clear out the crowds. Uh, my particular agency, uh, we use the LRAD for announcements and we actually don't use it uh, as a weapon. That part is actually even disabled per our uh, city council instructions. That's definitely something uh, for our 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 community it was explained the LRAD was not a microwave device because they were often uh, view the LRAD as a microwave device and then to further go in on that was that high-pitched piercing noise to move the crowd away they prohibited us from using that as well go ahead Chris I just gonna say that they're confused people think the microwave and the LRAD are the same device and they're not hey Marcus if you go back to AB 48 real quick Okay. Uh, yeah, if we go back to AB48, which is uh, the less lethal stuff, mm-hmm. they essentially put ROEs on us. They codified that in 13652. If you go down to number two, it talks about repeated audible announcements are made announcing the intent to use kinetic energy projectiles and chemical agents and the type to be used in ejective lesion will do so. The announcements shall be made from various locations if necessary and delivered in multiple eight languages if appropriate. The LRAD. That's what we use it for, to make repeated audible announcements so that we can hear it. So for those of you out there who have an LRAD, refer back to AB48. Obviously, working with your you know, city attorney or county uh, rep, refer back to this stuff. I mean, look back at what they're doing to us and it, say, yeah. hey, if you take this LRAD away from us, we cannot comply with AB48 here and make audible announcements uh, i would mean? take it a step farther and say if you don't have one go get one but no, to comply with ab48 i mean during crowd control riot riots type stuff uh, there i don't know of anything that works better than an lrad other than maybe yes. whatever they launch on a helicopter which may actually be an lrad <laughs> um but other than that you're not going to get those announcements out on a patrol car pa on a bullhorn on some of these older traditional you you need something heavy duty let's move through some of the other to get to the the other stuff here so um following projectile launch platforms associated munitions 40 millimeter projectile launchers beanbag rubber bullet and specialty impact munition weapons so pretty much anything that's non-standard issue used in a non-lethal capacity at bad guys i would interpret as we should throw in here so that's like uh what is it your your uh chris i don't have one of these but what is it the fn's oh yeah the fn 303s yeah the fn 303s yep. well and 37 millimeter even though it specifies 40 millimeter they're still beanbag and especially impact munition weapons or launchers so uh that, that all applies as well and i think that goes back to adam and travis's point of the intent and brent's the the intent of this you know let's not hide the hide the football so to speak uh, and then military equipment does not include general equipment not designated as prohibitor controlled by the Defense Logistics Agency. 
uh, my my agency doesn't really use uh, 1033, so I didn't I didn't get too in the weeds on that stuff. Um, now let's talk about the policy. Publicly released written document governing the use of military equipment by a law enforcement agency or a state agency that addresses at a minimum a description of each type of military equipment, the quantity sought, its capabilities, expected lifespan, and product descriptions from the manufacturer of the military equipment. That's a lot to cover. So, you know, you're going to, I foresee that as you're, you're doing basically a layman's PowerPoint of every munition and every piece of equipment that we just discussed uh, to your elected officials, whether it's your whole city council board of supervisors or their designee. Anybody interpret that differently? And that's going to be the majority of the work right there, right? Um, but it also is a great opportunity for you as a leader to develop your people's expertise and your own. There's a lot of this stuff that I don't use. I'm not a, a chem agent guy. Um, I supervise the chem agent guys, but I'm not a chem agent guy, nor was I one. So I had to go educate myself on what we have, why we have it, what it looks like. And it gave me an opportunity to really be impressed by my folks that do that because they know what they're talking about. And uh, it was good to see some of the older folks brush up on it. And uh, it was good to see some of my newer folks just really super dialed. Like, especially when it came to non-lethal standoff distances, uh, effective range, you know, that kind of stuff. So that going, that's your policy, right? So it starts with that. And then we go to uh, the purposes and authorized uses for which the agency or state agency proposes to use it. So when do you use it? The physical impact of each type of equipment, including initial cost and estimated annual cost of maintaining. So uh, that's something uh, usually somebody in your department knows already. Their legal and procedural rules govern each authorized use. That's your use of force. I don't know if we're really going to have to get into the weeds on that as much. And then this one, the training, including any course required by post that must be completed before any officer, agent, employee of the agency or state agency is allowed to use each specific type of military equipment. So what does it say we have to have in order to use these kind of weapons. So you have to pass your firearms course. You have to pass a non-lethal course. You have to pass a chem agent course. What does that look like? Those are, I, I still say that's pretty straightforward stuff. Everybody agree? Um, this is where, this is where you as an agency can really help yourself when you do, you know, above and beyond the, the minimum required by post. It also includes, you know, who can drive the vehicles, or the vessels or the robots or any of that stuff as well. There's gotta be codified training uh, or you know, documented and verifiable training uh, now outlined in the policy for that as well. And then they want you to build a mechanism to ensure <clears throat> compliance with the military equipment use policy, including which independent persons or entities have the oversight authority, what legally enforceable sanctions are put in place if you violate the policy, if any. So they're basically saying they're going to leave it up to each municipality or elected officials to develop a, a structure or a format that works for you and uh, what the penalty might be uh, is up to them. So uh, any other thoughts on that? I mean, that's that's not all of it, but that's the big the big part. Uh, we've got some grayers I want to touch on before we run out of time. 
So it talks, uh, the next step is uh, the procedure by which members of the public can register their complaints or concerns or submit questions. I think most of our agencies already have a structure to do that. So now we just kind of have to add um, military equipment type stuff to that. Let me ask you a question about that, Marcus. And, and, and uh, Travis, is for you with the, kind of some of the your, your current um, assignment stuff. Is that something that you would recommend agencies uh, fold into their citizen complaint policy and just make that an additional component there? Or are you envisioning a whole separate structure there? Because I initially had thought about a whole separate structure, but Marcus, when you're kind of reading it out loud, and I'm, I'm reading along with you, I'm wondering if if that's something that could be folded in that way. Well, remember, we I didn't read it out, out loud, but there's another section in the law that requires you hold a public forum. So mm -hmm. every year you present this annual report, you have to present it before the public forum date. Then at the public forum, you're going to have to allow people to make a comment on whatever they like or dislike, you know, which is standard practice for generally most city council board of supervisor meetings. And then if people want to file a complaint throughout the year, you have to provide them with a process to do so. So in my opinion, that's pretty similar to what we already do. You might have to change your pamphlets or add a check the box that this complaint is about the military equipment so it can get forwarded to the appropriate person. But I think we, most of us have some formal structure for citizens or civilians to file complaints about anything they want. Am I missing I, I would anything? Say, no, I would say wrap it in. That, I mean, let's make it all in one. Let's not make it something separate. They can, they can, like Marcus said, check the box. One thing that we're going to do, and I know some of you might have oversight committees, we have a police and fire commission in my jurisdiction, and we're essentially going to solicit that whole, you know, community input into our military equipment, which we all know it isn't, on and during the police and fire commission presentation. So you can fulfill that. In, in, in several different ways that might not be as easy for some of you as it is for me, but just something to think about. A real broad brush here. I just want to cover the last little four sections and let's talk about, there's a couple gray areas that we have all discussed individually before we got together tonight that I think we should touch on. But uh, before we do, the last, uh, the last section here talks about uh, seeking approval um, for the proposed military equipment, it talks about the governing body shall consider uh, a military equipment use policy as an agenda item for open session, which we kind of just talked about, uh, shall only approve military equipment use policy pursuant to this chapter if the equipment is necessary because there's no reasonable alternative that can achieve the same objective of officer and civilian safety. The proposed military equipment use policy will safeguard the public's welfare, safety, civil rights, and civil liberties. If purchasing the equipment is reasonably cost-effective compared to available alternatives, it can achieve the same objective. And then uh, prior military equipment use policy that was in effect at the time, uh, if prior uses did not comply with the accompanying military equipment use policy, corrective action has to be taken to remedy it. That's pretty, pretty common sense. Um, and then in order to facilitate public participation, any proposed or final military equipment use policy shall be made publicly available on the internet website of the relevant law enforcement agency for as long as the equipment is available for use. And then it, it goes on to talk about um, reviewing the ordinance, doing an annual military equipment report submitted pursuant to uh, 7072, whether each type of the equipment identified in that report is 
complied with the standards for approval. So basically, if, if we complied at the end of the annual report, they say we do. If we we're out of compliance, they're going to report that we didn't. And, and then we have in that annual report has to have the summary of how the equipment was used, what was the purpose, any complaints, and how they were addressed, uh, results of internal audits for violation of the policy, annual cost, uh, quantity possessed for each type, um, and if it intends to require more in the next year, what does it want to buy? And then within 30 days of submitting and publicly releasing the annual military equipment report, pursuant to this section, the law enforcement agency shall hold at least one well-publicized and conveniently located community engagement meeting at which the general public may discuss and ask questions regarding the annual military equipment report. So that, that's kind of the back end. Once we get all this information, we're just required to present it to the public and give them a, a form, which is pretty consistent with everything else we do uh, in local government. I don't see a, a big stretch on that. It's just something we haven't had to do before. If you look at uh, 707, I, and I can't even believe I'm going down the numbers here, but if you look at 707-1 and you go down to D, collaborating with another law enforcement agency in the deployment or other use of military equipment within the ter territorial jurisdiction of the governing body. Did you guys talk about that at all? No, and that was one of those gray areas that I wanted to bring up right now. We wanted to cover kind okay. of nuts and bolts. There's a couple areas we highlighted on, but one of the biggest gray areas in this legislation, or at least difficult to navigate, is the mechanics of mutual aid. Yeah, so, so that completely violates uh, I mean, for those of us who have who have got who have had our Bearcats purchased off of UASI funding, any of you who were involved in that or wrote any of those grants, one of the things that we agreed to was those were regional assets. Now, is there some type of enforcement arm of UASI that's going to come down and say anything? I haven't seen it yet. I mean, it's it doesn't exist. It's just like when we don't use ICS. I mean, who's the enforcement arm that comes after us? Nobody's seen that. It's just a ghost. However, it's an argument that needs to be made is that, hey, the legislative or the city councils and, 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 and counties agreed to these funds being taken so that we can have these armored rescue vehicles as a regional asset. I mean, just this last week, my city provided their Bearcat to another city for a serious situation here and what's going to happen if your city council suddenly says no you guys can't provide that service to another jurisdiction and it flies against everything that we know about our mutual aid system here in california well, so yeah, that is all ammunition that you can use to make your argument in front of your city councils and in front of your county supervisors especially those of us that are in smaller jurisdictions, right? So, so uh, I have uh, one armored rescue vehicle in my county. And the, anytime we have anything that's pretty serious, I'm calling for the next one in the neighboring county. And the closest one in any direction is a minimum of 45 minutes away. So if you consider an adversarial event like an active shooter, and I'm calling for multiple armored rescue vehicles, at minimum, best case scenario, they're 45 minutes away. Now, take that a step farther, and let's talk about disaster response. 
So in disaster response, you're going to call for mutual aid. And in my city, since it often burns down uh, portions of it every other year, um, or where Chris works, we, we often will have the National Guard in town. And the National Guard shows up as a mutual aid to post security, to provide evacs, and they are all driving military equipment. So now do I need to have a, a second agreement that with the National Guard? More importantly, mutual aid like a neighboring city in my county has MRAPs. We don't have MRAPs. My city, um, my city council uh, does not prohibits us from using the 1033 program for anything and certainly doesn't want MRAPs in our town. And whether that's good or bad, that's okay. It's just what it is. But when I need a, another piece of armor, the closest piece of armor to me is an MRAP. So now so I have Marcus, to get some kind of agreement between our cities saying it's okay to have. And if they say no, that's going to extend that area of operation out for me to get something else. I think the section specifically excludes, obviously, federal or military because it's outside the the jurisdiction of the state of California and state legislature. So I, I think reading through this, um, and I'll have to find a section, if you're working with FBI, DEA, ATF, whoever, or if you're working with National Guard, this doesn't apply to them. Now, there may be political ramifications, but as far as legal implications, I don't think 481 holds any weight over, over those agencies. You know, I, I don't. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I didn't. I didn't know that, Adam. But I appreciate your input on it. Just something to think about. Like this is going to massively complicate mutual aid, for sure. And to to Travis's earlier point that it will likely look different in different jurisdictions. And I don't have this figured out because this is still something we're working through here. But taking the uh, our neighboring agencies that we work with, and they have equipment that uh, we don't have that we utilize, and and vice versa. So. Conceptually, I'm working with our city attorney and, and the county council to see, I'm not sure if this is going to look like a formalized MOU or if it's going to be a component in the policy with some verbiage that talks about being able to, um, that AB 481 is, it covers uh, these agencies that we would um, request mutual aid from um, as well, but having it in there that um, that allied agency uh, may have additional equipment that would be utilized at the discretion of a, a tactical or incident commander, but it still uh, would be used in compliance with agency policy as well as federal and state guidelines. I don't know whether that's going to work yet. I don't know what exactly that looks like, but that's some of the rough framework that we're working on on our end to try to be able to have that implemented to give us a little bit of that freedom that when you do have these critical incidents, that you'll be able to utilize that equipment out, stopping, saying, hey, I need your help because, to your point, uh, the uh, my city's burning down, or what we saw in Santa Barbara where the mudslides where bearcats were being used to, re to rescue people there say, well, I don't know what your uh, military equipment use policy is, so I'm not sure whether I can use that or not. That we're going to have to get some sort of com common sense component in there. So I encourage you to try to be proactive in how you utilize and articulate some of those things in your policy to, to be able to allow uh, for those uh, for for the use, especially in um, in situations like that. So again, not sure. I don't have a template for you to work off of. This is something that we're hoping that we can uh, capture some of the best practices that are out there statewide, and then try to be able to make it accessible to uh, to you if you're if you're listening. But I would anticipate that these things are going to be coming up in the future. Some of the deadlines we talked about here is, I think it's May first. You have to commence the the approval process. So. 
And what what does that look like? I, you know, the farther along you can get on this thing by May first, the the better. And it's got to be posted for thirty days before that. So, so really, this is probably something everybody that we're talking to throughout the state's been working on this for the last month or two. But uh, uh, those would be some of the things I'd, I'd encourage you to think about. Yeah, and to jump in on. Go ahead, Chris. I was say, I think uh, rectifying that mutual aid issue is exactly what Brent said. It could be rolled into the policy pretty straightforward, uh, but also to Travis's point, not including it or not addressing it is problematic. So it, it has to be addressed one way or another, but it probably doesn't have to be. Yeah, again, being reasonable, <clears throat> being transparent, you know, to Adam's point, we don't, well, the last thing we want to do is make it look like we're trying to hide the ball, but don't make it more complicated than it needs to be either. Uh, for me, I'm a small county, so I know what's in my my county. I know the other cities. If they have something that I know my city doesn't want me to use, then I'm going to have to ask our elected officials in an, in an extreme emergency, is this something I can ask to use or not? And if they say no, then they're going to have to go on record and say no. And, and in all I honesty, I would say you should probably have something in there that allows you to make a phone call and have them vote and say, yeah, you can use it. Because Dallas's are going to happen. Things that we haven't thought of and addressed are going to happen. And uh, you need to give them an opportunity to rethink their position in those events. And we've done that as in our city. We've done that during disasters, you know, where the city council gets together and immediately votes to declare a state of emergency, right? Or, or declare special funding to... Uh, for the emergency response so that they have mechanisms in place as, as elected officials to deal with that stuff. If something's going sideways in the jurisdiction next to you and your elected officials have said, no, you can't do that. What are we going to do? You know, if people are getting killed, if lives are on the line, our armor is needed. Are we just going to sit there and let people die? Or are we going to respond? Uh, and I'll tell you for me personally, I'm going to go respond. We're going to respond. Yeah. So, Think about that. Think about those contingency plans. If you work in a jurisdiction where your city council or county supervisors are not friendly to this stuff, what are you going to do? And we're, we're going to go help. That's what we do. So you're right. You know, and if you go down a little bit farther along the same lines, is that subsection F, the kind of small F, it doesn't really impact any of us, I don't think, here. Um, but if you work for a sheriff's department, and um, you contract your uh, public safety service with a smaller city. It talks about um, the city having the authority to adopt a military equipment use policy based on their community needs as well. So if you do happen to work, it, this would largely affect uh, sheriff's departments, but if you are um, providing services for a smaller city, that's probably something that you want to um, establish and evaluate now as well to make uh, that could I could envision a scenario where that would be a deal breaker and whether you want to continue to provide uh, services to a, to a contract city. All right. So um, before we close out um, this particular portion, um, any other closing thoughts that you feel, because we spent a lot of time on this tonight and we spent a lot of time of it together and individually over the last month or so, kind of grappling with some of these questions. Any any other closing thoughts that we can throw in at the end here? No, I, I just want to thank you guys for for this. You guys have really helped develop my thoughts and um, and and help uh, on 
on my end. So thank you guys for your time and for uh, your expertise on this. Uh, you know, Marcus, thanks for bringing it forward. We don't have this thing figured out. It's easy to look at this as kind of a sky is falling type uh, scenario, but I really want to just encourage those that are listening here. Let's continue to work through this and still find ways to go through and, and be able to be impactful in how we serve at Travis's point. It's what we do. It's what we're here for and to, to be able to, to help and, uh, and, and not, not buy into some of the rhetoric. So I'd encourage you to look for ways to be a, to, to be able to still be impactful and, and work through this legislation. I wanted to comment on something Travis was talking about, about whether or not you go to help and things like that. Uh, you know, some of these procedures or policies that you write, the draft one that I'm most familiar with is roughly 40 pages long, 40 pages, because it covers a lot of material, a lot of equipment, et cetera. But something specific was put into this draft policy and it's basically the exigent circumstances clause. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says something to the effect of a variety of equipment options can be can greatly assist incident commanders, officers, and specific units in bringing incidents to a swift resolution in a safe manner. The use of military equipment is restricted for use only in certain instances, and in some cases only by certain units, SWAT, whatever. While this procedure is wide ranging, it's not all inclusive. There may be very limited instances where an unpredictable critical incidents demand the need for incident commanders to authorize equipment to be used in a manner not outlined in this procedure. In scrutinizing those particular instances, the judgment of the incident commander influenced by the totality of the circumstances, public safety, officer safety, civil rights, and information available at the time will be used. So basically in the procedure that's going to go on record or basically codify how an agency is going to move forward with this, builds in, hey, listen, you may have a Dallas where the chief of police says, hey, we need to do this. Or an incident commander says, to Travis's point, people are dying and more people are going to die. Or people's lives are greatly at risk and are out of options. And a judgment call has to be made. But that's generally, generally the exception, not the rule. I think it's important as you're working on these policies to build something like that in there. So when the next day comes, right, the after action, the scrutiny, the lawsuits, and they say, this isn't within your window as outlined in your policies. It's like, no, but this is a singular occurrence where we had to think outside the box, adapt and overcome to save lives. Again, looking at the Supreme Court, right? What's objectively reasonable given what's known at the time. Building that into your policy explicitly, I think is really, really important. And I think it's going to be, I think most governing bodies are going to buy into that and understand that there needs to be a little bit of room for maneuvering. Because again, if one of these events happens and they didn't give us the ability to, to do our jobs as law enforcement, the onus is back on them. And I think one of the most powerful things we can do is illustrate some of the issues that have happened in our jurisdiction, localizing the issue or nearby jurisdictions and really to illustrate these points, right? It's one thing to come in and bang on the table Able and say this is ridiculous and this is you know inflammatory and there's another thing to come in and kind of a business manner and say hey listen we all want public safety and if you take these tools away play this out if we don't have these tools you may have your downtown on fire in the middle of a riot we may not be able to rescue somebody who's pinned down an active shooter and you can use pulse nightclub as an example or thousand oaks as an example but you have to come in with those facts ready to go versus just saying this is ridiculous pepper ball is not military equipment. That fight was, was fought and lost, right? Porak fought that battle. It, it's lost. This stuff is on the books. 
So we're stuck with the fight that we have, not the fight that we want. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.